Welcome to the Evernorth Podcast, where we bring on the explorers, dreamers, and discoverers to find out what their true north is in life. Hope you're all having a great day and enjoy the show. Travis, welcome to the Evernorth Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I first met you actually at a founders retreat hosted by Emerging Prairie, and you had a pretty interesting um, life. Would you be able to provide a little background onto the listeners that do not know who you are? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love, and I learned on the East Coast. I studied culinary arts at the International Culinary Center, uh, and from there was cooking in New York restaurants and Philadelphia restaurants and wanted to, frankly, not make $7.50 an hour for someone else, so I then... uh, took an opportunity to start my own entrepreneurial adventure out here in Fargo. And the way I got out here was Carson Wentz just got uh, drafted to the Eagles. So there was a lot of new, at least Carson Wentz fans here in North Dakota. So you're a pretty big fan of the Eagles? Oh, huge. And you huge. can't be from Philadelphia. How, how, do you, how do you feel about them right now in the season? Oh, gosh. <laughs> how do I feel about them? Uh... I don't know, how do you feel about a, what are we, five and six now? Pretty shitty, to be honest, yeah. you know? Just, you can't separate the fans and the team, it's just us. So, you know, it's it could be worse, but uh, it's a stark contrast from last year. It's just a lot of magic that happened last year. So, try to recreate that, but second year slumps are what they are, but uh, you live and you learn, I guess you could say. Yeah, so you just, you basically, uh, found out Carson Wentz was from Fargo, and then you kind of made the decision to yeah, come here. Is yeah, that- well, Fargo, uh, you know, there's a lot of underlying reasons why to come out from Fargo for entrepreneurialism. Uh, really good reasons, too. But as the story goes, uh, there was a niche for Philadelphia Fair. So I said, you know what, why don't I make some Philadelphia cheesesteaks and see if I can sell them to a new host of Philadelphia fans. And that was my first venture out here. So I bought a food truck. Called it Fargo Food with a PH, which I'll never forget. A uh, college student in the wee hours of Friday night came up to my truck and, because I spelled it F, I, spar- I spelled it P H A R G O, food. She comes up to me and just looks dead, deadpan in the ass and says, Do you know you spelled Fargo wrong? And so I said, Yeah, no, I, I realized that, but thank you for. Thank you for checking in on it anyway. So, made some Philadelphia cheesesteaks, whiz wit, whiz wit out, as we say in South Street, Philadelphia. And uh, since then, had uh, was doing a side gig called Harvestable, which I'm currently doing now, um, and kind of transitioned over from being a chef to kind of an entrepreneur now in that regard. So yeah, Harvestable, what is uh, Harvestable? So Harvestable is a online platform that connects local farmers with local chefs, um, providing them with local food, uh, good local product, and really trying to influence them as, as creators uh, to frankly use better product than they're gonna get off of a, you know, a truck, frankly speaking. Um, and this kind of goes down deep in my roots as being a farm-oriented chef, Um, you know, uh, the popular term would be farm-to-table, but farm-oriented is much more than just kind of saying you've got vegetables and and, and whatnot. It's really looking at the entirety of our food systems 
and trying to set that up in a better way for the future. And, and as a chef, uh, from a creative standpoint, our food really is only good as the product that we get from the farmer. Um, you know, things can come in abundance off of the truck and it can be cheap, but a lot of things to make it taste good, you gotta really do some, you know, some work in the kitchen to produce. Good chefs will tell you right off the bat that food is best served simple and to achieve that simplicity, which is, I think in both food and in a bunch of different art, arts is, is the hardest to obtain, but you really gotta start with the product that you're, you're gonna be working with. So as good as a painter is, you know, with their good paint, a chef is with good product. What kind of sparked the idea to create this company? Oh, to, uh, to really envision what type of food system I want to be eating in and what food system I want my children and their children to be, to be eating in. Because, uh, you know, to, to, to reap all of this food that we have right now, which is great. I mean, we, we live in such an abundant time, probably the most abundant time ever in humanity. Uh, but it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost to the fields and it comes with the cost of the farmer and it comes with the cost of, you know, we just had an E. coli outbreak, so it comes with the cost of the consumer. This comes from thousands and thousands of acres uh, cultivated off of, you know, for just romaine lettuce, you know, thousands of acres. And what happens is that that lettuce gets tainted on the field, it gets harvested and shipped, and then that disseminates to, I mean, anywhere from Milwaukee to Tuscaloosa, you know? So uh, for me, that that's concerning. And frankly, it's not as good. It's not as good tasting. It's like, it's like playing down in any form of art. You're just, you're using crayons instead of craypaw. You're using you know, an out of tune, poor strings on your guitar or anything like that. You're just, as an artist, you're only as good as your product to start out with. And sure, you can turn a profit and you can feed people with food that you get off of Cisco or, or US Foods. But if you are a chef and you want to promote your food and as good as that can be, then getting it off of those guys is like, you're already cooking with one hand behind your back, in my opinion. Because yeah, you're really looking for the promotion of you're working with local producers to almost also allow these restaurants to promote your uh, your company as like hey we uh, we source local products here mm -hmm. in a way so you also add a benefit of marketing to that oh absolutely I think it's uh, well. it's it's a great affiliated way of marketing because we are putting ourselves in the same boats as the restaurants and as the farmers they do well we do well so it's not as if we're holding a gun to their head and saying buy from us we know we have the best product. I can have people tell you that the tomatoes that were brought in this summer were better than any tomatoes they've ever gotten off of their previous distributor. So, you know, if, if, the, if the chefs and the restaurateurs understand the marketing of good product, and that comes with time, that comes with consumers, and, um, but if they, they should acknowledge that their product is, is going to be better on the plate by finding professionals that are doing it every day in the fields. Talking to you know, a farmer who, insanely intelligent people, they know exactly what their fields need, they know what product they're looking for, they know what tastes good, they know how to cultivate good food. Uh, so in turn, if we can get that product into restaurants, 
Um, and the restaurants grow because their consumers say, wow, this is you know, this carrot. I've never had such a delicious carrot before. Well, yeah, I didn't get it off of Cisco. I got it off of, you know, Scott, who's got, you know, five generations of understanding his fields. And just, you know, you think of just the quality. Because uh, I always, even though I'm venturing into the, the entrepreneurial, you know, position of being a businessman, I'm always going to say I'm a chef. And as a chef, you always... It comes down to the ingredient and, and how good it is at face value. So if I can promote that in my chef community, then I think that we're all better off for it. And then how long have you been working on Harvestable? I guess, like what's the... Oh, at least a year. Um, yeah. Since kind of, it all started with me and my co-founder, Nate, uh, standing right outside on Broadway. Um, for those who are listening out of town or out of country, we're in Fargo, North Dakota. Broadway cuts down the main street, and we were standing right there, right outside where we're recording right now, and very much had this conversation, say, man, you know, we're in an area where there's abundance of agriculture surrounding Fargo, and yet there's a Cisco truck driving down Broadway, stopping at every little area now. And there's, and there's a great, great uh, farmer's market, the Red River Market, that, you know, I've been to, been to farmer's markets in Barcelona and New York City and my hometown of Philadelphia and just about everywhere. The product that comes out of here is just remarkable. I mean, I'll I'll praise it till the day I'm done is to say that some of the best food comes out of this area. So you kind of say, well, with all this, you know, pretty much sitting on a gold mine, why are we still being fed fool, fool's gold, basically? You know, it's like you got, oh, what are the fake diamonds that jewelers sometimes pawn off? It's like, yeah, it glitters, but what else, you know? So, so that really sparked us to say, well, is it the system or is it the people or what's the problem here? You know, we kind of, after really asking questions and doing research and talking with our community, um, we found that it was more or less the system, is that information sharing, is that, you know, that understanding and just getting people to understand more about what your idea is, try to gain that, you know, passion and influence and, and at the end of the day, showing them that, you know, yeah, it could cost a little bit more. We're not talking about $5 more. We're talking about a couple cents, maybe a dollar more. But to tell young eaters that really want to know where their food's coming from and want to take, you know, we look at our Instagrams every day looking at uh, dishes coming from New York or Paris or Germany, and you're just like, gosh, man, I bet that tastes awesome. Well, we can have that here. And that's what everyone demands now in their food, you know? It's, it's more quality and, and going out there and spending money on having that experience in food and you know you can't have that without really good products so trying to bundle that all down and to say um we're trying to fix that and, and promote that and we think that this system that is you know people can easily engage with it it's a marketplace we've all been on amazon we've all been on ebay it's it's that for good local food and trying to get better foods into our restaurants yeah i'd definitely be willing to go to more restaurants that were to have like local prudos or even if it was like a few cents more, like you're saying, I'd still like much rather go there than a restaurant that maybe just outsources them from different parts of the states or anything. Mm -hmm. but I think so. I think I know I'd pay for that. Yeah. You know, it's that attachment to the land, and frankly, it's just going to taste better. So, so, yeah, so having worked for on Harvestable for a year, what is the biggest struggle um, that you've ran into so far? Oh, well, for all you entrepreneurs out there, it's just money. Okay. You know, it's. <laughs> You need gas to make the car run, and uh, you know we're not we're not short of passion, and we're not short of uh, community support. Um, 
but as it were, as, you know, as everything, you just money makes the world go around, and we're no different. So that's kind of been the first challenge. Otherwise, we found, I mean, it's it just it on its face sounds good, right? It's just it's yeah, I want to eat better food, and yeah, I believe in the environmental issues that massive agriculture, you know, uh, happens to happens to you know happens as a consequence of mass ag. Uh, so. And giving the farmers and small businesses, you know, farmers are small businesses too, um, the opportunity to to grow and get into more restaurants and you know get off of paper and get into the digital age and all this all this stuff. So you know, but I think that with the phase shift, battles are harder fought because people are naturally comfortable beings that want to kind of remain comfortable and at least for the time's sake and uh, until entrepreneurial age classes like yourself and myself kind of get to calling the shots a little bit more um it's harder to change minds but that's kind of you know that's the goal is to change minds and, and move forward and try to usher in a new phase era of food systems so being that your uh, harvestable is mainly probably um, online source mm-hmm. how are you kind of working to get the farmers that probably older don't really use technology as much mm-hmm. broad and easy yeah. simple <laughs> instructions um yeah keeping it simple i mean not everyone is not everyone is so stuck behind but uh there's certainly older farmers uh that you know we walk through and it's simple you just word password upload a photo and just type in information so um but it's the young farmers that are you know just kind of built to know how to use this thing you know it's going to be young chefs that are built to know how to use this thing it's chefs that understand the value of marketing and and being able to put local next to an ingredient you know it wasn't so long ago that we were putting organic next to chicken and that's why your chicken cost fifteen dollars instead of ten dollars people understood what organic meant you know now i think the difference between organic and local is that many local farmers plant organic or or follow organic practices regardless of having the certified organic um tag but ultimately, local just tastes better. I mean, it's quality of the product. You, know, you can go get organic, you know, salad mix from the co-op right now from California, and we can go get a local salad mix from Sam, and we can taste either one, and I guarantee you which one we're going to pick. Um, so I think that local understanding, you know, that marketing uh, application of local is something that chefs are becoming more privy to. Um, young chefs more or less look for regardless. And young consumers are willing to pay for it. You know, it's something that I think is just good for the soul. At the end of the day, is that I'm supporting my local economy. I'm supporting the earth, and I'm eating better food. At the end of the day. So, what has been been the biggest success that you've had? I know you talked about um, you're kind of working with Chipotle on kind of solving the. Well, we're not working. We're not working yet. yet yeah, but, well, uh, knock on wood. Yeah. Um, that would be a huge success. I mean. You're seeing big companies right now, and one that we work with as well, uh, trying, they understand that. They understand what we just talked about, is that local food initiative, young people wanting to go eat there because of that, supporting where their food is from. So I think just at face value that we're engaging with these companies that a year ago, you know, if you told me that we were gonna be working with one of our clients, that I'm just remaining nameless because we'd have to get write-offs and stuff to make sure that we can use their names and such. But uh, you know, the fact that they're engaged and they want to get you know into that space, and I mean, 
that is a test of the times because frankly they've got other barriers and they got to reach you know they got to be able to feed their crew but that that is such an important thing for their employees that they want they need to get into it so you know there's a lot of big companies that are the cause of mass agriculture but there's a lot of companies that are now like chipotle that want to look into getting more local and understanding the value to that so you know, a year ago today, if you said that those were going to be coming out of my mouth, I'd be just, I'd be like, all right, looks like we're doing pretty, doing pretty well in a year plus here, so not too bad. Are you working on Harvestable full time? Is yeah. that, have you, was there a moment maybe before you did the food trucks or before Harvestable that you were working kind of like as a side hustle or were, were you able to do all these different ventures kind of full time? Uh, well, before so Harvest Bowl has only been about eight months old. So before that, I was doing the truck full time, and before that, I was cooking in kitchens the full time. Um, and when you're in kitchen work, you're just you're so uh, what was the phrase I heard? You know, you're so close to the elephant. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I can understand what it means. But it's like it's a bad phrase. But you're so close within the thing you're focusing on, just that next task, next task, that. You know, you, you kind of bitch and moan about some things, but you're not thinking about the bigger picture. You're not thinking about the, you know, the forest through the trees, if you will. So, you know, at that time, I was like, man, I just want to be a good chef. And I was so inspired by Dan Barber, who was really the inception, you know, mind behind what I kind of think of food today. His, his book is called The Third Plate, and he's very much the face to the, you know, farm to table movement. And his whole idea was that we got to start thinking about how we eat on the plate. It can't be, you know, uh, half the plate is meat with a big steak and, you know, you got a little vegetables, a little bit of grain, and we think that's an American healthy meal. You know, it's got to be, we got to tamper that down. We got to be more vegetable oriented and we got to be, uh, you know, less meat oriented and, and getting back to our ancient grains and whole grains. And, okay, but how do you do that? Well, that comes from quality. You got to have people to say, man, I, I'm starving for, you know, some Brussels sprouts or something like that. It's not the easiest sell, but, you know, at the same time, the one thing that sells it is good product. It's something that's just abundantly delicious. And that's how you start influencing it. So I think that was really, as a, you know, as an artist, as I considered myself and do consider myself as a chef, you got to have some type of soapbox and ground you stand on for whatever art you want to promote. And his, you know, the first time he said was like, you know, we gotta be farm oriented and cooking within your means and that limited pantry that we, you know, that kind of breeds creativity. I thought that was awesome. You know, I, that's what really, you know, got me to want to be more of a creative chef in that regard. Uh, but then as Harvestable became more of in my life and, and thinking, well, this is something that I would, this is a tool that I wanna have as a chef. This is something that, you know, man, I can go online and see what, I'm new here in town in Fargo. I go on Harvestable and see all the local providers. And, you know, that gives me an opportunity to say, I use only local and it's better than the guy next to me. And I mean, gosh, that's such a cool tool for me. That's something that I instantly want to be jacked into if no matter what community I go to. So I, I think I couldn't have thought of Harvestable with Nate without having been that, you know, urging creative chef that really spurred me to out here. Was it a hard uh, jump for you to make from going to Philadelphia to Fargo and like pursuing kind of more of your entrepreneurial business um, side of things? Was that like a hard leap to make? Yes and no. Um, I think every entrepreneur is at first a business card entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is like, 
you create the logo, you get the business cards, you tell about this awesome idea that you have, and you're like, all right, let me call you, right? Uh, and that's good. That's where you kind of need to start. You kind of need to put your toe in there and kind of feel like the man or, or the woman uh, in that moment. Um, but then you get down to the grittiness and you look at the you look at the market space and all that stuff. And so um, I feel like in Philadelphia, there's like this. I call it the Philadelphia hustle, but everyone's kind of got this hustler's mentality in Philadelphia. It's you know the the perfect example of that is like a, outside you know sports games you got a guy who's pushing the home depot cart there's no home depot around mind you somehow has a home depot cart full of just cheap you know be it shirts or selling pretzels and it's like it's that hustle yelling out you know hey i got this or you know etc it's kind of what you got to have so i feel like that's something that i was able to achieve growing up in philadelphia bringing over here where you have a lot of entrepreneurial minded people um, that are engaging that whether they know it or not kind of have that hustle regardless um, but as a community itself I mean Philadelphia even though it's millions of more people larger than Fargo has that kind of community feel to it especially when you think about giving back you know, a lot of people here in Fargo that want to give back to Fargo that's something that's very similar within uh, in Philadelphia is that you want to give back to Philadelphia so in some regards, it's nicer out here, personally. It's nicer people. Um, but that, that drive and that ability to want to change and all that stuff was, was familiar. Um, and frankly speaking, it's not that much colder out here than it is in Philadelphia. So transition total is not all that difficult. Yeah. So what kind of keeps you motivated for when the times when you're maybe doubting yourself or like running into that problem? I think the people that we've talked to. I think that, you know, as a growing entrepreneur, there's a great quote by a gentleman by the name of Reed Hoffman. And he goes, entrepreneurialism is jumping off a cliff and then building a plane on your way down. And that's kind of it. I mean, that's the yeah. gig, right? It's, it's totally risk-oriented and then saying, um, I'm going to bet on myself to figure it out. So in the toughest times, kind of having that ingrained into you is that, you know, this is the life you chose. Um, hearing from people that understand what we're trying to do and people that we're trying to help, you know, you kind of, you, you their eyes light up and be like, wow, I'm so glad that you're doing something like this. Just so really that, looking for feedback. Yeah, kind of I, that, that keeps you humble because I feel like at the end of the day, people can fail and frankly, you know, it's, I'm not saying that I'm going to be successful and most likely, you know, it could be failure, but you learn from your failures. So I think that I'm not scared of that, which keeps me going quite smoothly, is, is knowing that I can, the lessons I'll learn from failure are something that will benefit me, and knowing that I'm not scared of failure either, which is immensely powerful to kind of harness. And then kind of a side gig, you also do a podcast called The Nerdy Bunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is that? The Nerdy Bunch. The Nerdy Bunch for good content and world peace. <laughs> As we say, um, that is mine and a couple of friends I had back in New York, and still have back in New York. Um, it's our kind, of, it's our it's our media podcast. So we believe that anyone can be a nerd on anything. It's not just glasses and Star Trek and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. 
Um, Were you it, kind of a co-founder of the Nerdy Bunch, or did you? I'd say come a up? cultural co-founder. Okay. Um, definitely part of the original crew, um, but it was brought to me by our founder David Roberts, or at least I would say our our, our captain David, um, who's out in New York. And we started just podcasting because I mean we were like you know every single day we'd talk about whatever Marvel movies coming out or tech or you know the the great debate of Apple versus Google versus Android. I mean, and really got passionate about this. And you know, when we talk about nerds, it's not nerds in the general sense. It's like, do you have a great passion about anything? You know, and mine happened to be movies. I always loved movies, and I'd be, a lifetime ago I tried to be a producer in New York and. Uh, did my time there and got a documentary production pretty far along the way of the pitch cycle and then kind of the fickleness of, of uh, production industry in general is that it's a great idea until it's not and then it's gone um, which turned me to cooking but uh, before then you know we were just kind of hustling around New York going to Comic Con or going to this niche thing or hosting uh, early screenings and so, you know, just as a side passion project, I just love talking movies and all things type like that. So that's where we kind of do it. So we do news and we do uh, trailer breakdowns, trailer previews. Would you, maybe, would you maybe be able to expand on the trailers? Oh, like yeah. What, is, so, what does one talk about trailers on the... <laughs> what does one talk about trailers? Um, so we do a pod uh, episode called Bunch of Trailers. And it's me and David. And we break down kind of whatever trailers are popping out during that week. And uh, for me, I kind of get a rubric of like, how do I talk about trailers? Is, uh, you know, what makes a good trailer for myself? Well, I kind of think is like, does it leave you asking questions and wanting at the end? If it doesn't pass that, then it's not a great trailer, in my opinion. Um, and we break it down kind of saying uh, what we think the value of the movie is, what audience it wants to hit. Does it, was it a blatantly good trailer? Or was it just a bunch of action sequence and quick cuts and daunting music and whatnot? And, um, it's fun to look back on because you look at these movies and then you say, oh, well, the trailer was maybe even better than the movie. So uh, the general consensus comes down to if me and David are going to see it or in what capacity we'll see it. So sometimes your movie dollar isn't worth going to see the movie. So you might want to see it on an airplane or on Netflix or all these little things like what does a Netflix trailer have different than a regular trailer? And so it's it, kind of going back to that uh, limited pantry idea or constraints is like, well, I've got a two-minute clip here. How do I get the most out of that, and how do I talk about it and expectations? So it turns into quite a ramble, but it's a it's a fun time talking about it. What has been your favorite movie uh, trailer so far? Movie trailer so far. Gosh, we see about sixty a month. So you know what I did like? I like this new Pokemon trailer that's coming. Oh, out. okay. Oh, yeah. How did you feel about it? Kind of putting it into the real world more. Um. I liked it a lot because apparently I didn't know that it was a game. Detective Pikachu was a game beforehand, and, and I don't know. Was your generation Pokemon generation, or was this uh, like a total niche? Because everyone in the '90s played Pokemon, so there was like a ten-year window. If you grew up in that window, you're like Pokemon's. The yeah, shit. I'd say it's getting a little later to like what I grew up in. I definitely did grow up kind of in the Pokemon realm, but. I'd say earlier is even better. So back in my time, <laughs> um, in the early 90s when Pokemon came out, it just took the world by storm. And so the iterations going on until then, I didn't play all of them, but it was certainly a, uh, you know, such a link to my childhood. Um, 
so I didn't know that Pokemon or Pikachu, Detective Pikachu, was a game before the trailer came out. And so when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is kind of different. I didn't expect Ryan Reynolds' voice, who I completely associate with Deadpool now, um, being it. And so I, at the moment, I was like, oh, this is kind of perverse. But uh, I liked that how the world they were doing it in and, and seeing all the old Pokemon and stuff like that was just really, uh, you know, the same emotion that I had when seeing the new Lion King trailer come out, which is like, man, these things are in real life. This is actually really cool. Uh, and then kind of the, you know, we'll see where it goes. I think the world looks really awesome, and Ryan Reynolds looks like he could be cool in the in the role. So I'm just kind of kind of sit there with my eyes wide open and kind of be a kid again. So I think that's what was why I liked the trailer so much. Yeah, what has been your least favorite trailer you've ever seen? Oh gosh, it's this trailer is called. Uh, uh, it's called Moving Cities or something like that. It's this new Peter Jackson film that's coming out. Oh, what's it called? I think it is called Moving Cities or something. It's basically Cities on Wheels. And it is just a god-awful trailer because without knowing you're just looking at this thing, what the hell is this story? You got London on Wheels and I don't know who that chick is. And it just, it was one of those things where it was like the typical movie trailers. Like you come in from a big shot and it's like boom. And then, and you know, you kind of set up this thing and then a big explosion happens or some big daunting and then the big crescendo like you know uh sounds come in and you know and all this stuff and you're like okay what am i watching here at the end of the day it's like produced by the lord of the rings director and you're like yeah all right that kind of helps a little yeah, bit and then, out all the credibility <laughs> yeah and then at the end of the trailer there's someone's like what is that and they're like it's london and then it cuts, and you're like, what in the world did I just watch here? It was a bad trailer. It, it, I don't even remember who any of the characters' names are, why even it's a story. So yeah. kind of proves the point of how bad it was. And I'm supposed to finish off the podcast. I asked three questions, and the first one is, if you could go camping for a week with anyone, alive or dead, who would those three people be and why? Three people? I yes, three, three people, awesome. alive or dead. Okay, Teddy Roosevelt's number one. Teddy Roosevelt is the respon- is the president responsible for all of our uh, all of our uh, um, country's parks, public parks, the Yellowstone National Park, all that. So he just has a wealth of interest in in nature and and just he's I regard him as kind of a role model. I just think he's an incredible was an incredible human and his achievements. So I do him. I feel like Adam Sandler would be kind of fun to go on a camping trip with. And Larry David, just a couple of curmudgeons to be able to fool around with as Teddy kind of takes us throughout the park. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and then uh, if you could explore one place in the entire world, where would you go and why would you go there? I really want to go shoot, photography-wise, okay. <laughs> um, grizzly bears in Alaska. Okay. I've got it ever since my first grade report on grizzly bears, I've just had such an affinity with them and so to be in to be in that space and see nature and I just I love nature so much so I think that would be as a bucket list of mine is to go there and try to try to shoot some bears have you ever uh, seen like grizzly bear up close uh-uh. before no no oh my that'd be quite the experience I think, so. <laughs> I think it would be it'd be an adrenaline rush just knowing Definitely. that you've got 1,000 pounds of mean right in front of you so yeah that'd be a rush and then if you could give one piece of advice maybe to your younger self or another individual, who would that be? Or what would that be? Oh, to, to young people, younger people, 
too old myself. Um, I think that everyone has that itch to be an entrepreneur or a creative. Creatives are entrepreneurs in their own right too. Um, and if you're in a place that, you know, either feels constraining or or you're 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 doing something in your meantime and you've got you know once it's the right time I'm going to go and do this. Um, I think that that right time is unachievable. I think it's a farce. I don't. I think it's a unicorn. It's it's something that be just naturally you'll never achieve because as you progress through whatever you're doing, something new is going to pop up and you're going to have to readjust and conquer that challenge. Or so you're you're never going to find whatever that is in your head. You know the ninety nine percent. Once I'm ninety nine percent, I'll go after it. I'll know when I need to go. I am more of a 75, 80% rule guy is like, get your idea, understand its capacity, understand that there's actually a market there um, or, or whatever you want to do. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a marketable thing. If you want to be a musician or if you want to move out to Hollywood to try being an actress or an actor, that moment that you're waiting for is never going to happen. So you got to make that moment. You got to leap. You got to take the leap. You got to and understand what comes with that. I mean, don't be naive. Don't be thinking that everything's going to go, you know, roses and, and good smells. It's going to be, it's going to take everything you have in your self-confidence and, and whatnot. But I think the most important part is to take that leap and do it when you're young. I mean, geez, if you're 20, go do something. You'll be 22. You'll figure out if that was a good idea or not. And you'll turn around and you'll either get the desk job that you think you want or, or begrudgingly tank or or you find success and I think that's at, at any rate if you fail or whatever if you're successful and the many failures that come along with you being successful you're only going to learn by going to do it and it's the most cliche thing but you got to put your money near your mouth is I've got that 80% rule it works for me so just go do it you know yeah. always have time to come back and yeah, Whatever that works. Yeah, and I suppose if people, uh, how can people find you? Social media. Um, do you have any future uh, harvestable events that people can maybe come and support you at? Or oh, well, for harvestable's sake, um, the way you support us is going to restaurants and asking them if they source local food. More importantly, if they source to us, because then you know it's local food. Um, you know, we do concern ourselves with the chef and the farmer, but ultimately the consumers and the people that eat it if they demand local food your restaurants will provide that you know and and will change their ways and if you're going to go out and if some people don't cook anymore if you're going to go out and eat all the time well don't you want to eat good food and nutritious food and frankly stuff that's not going to give you e coli so you know i think that you want to be happy with what you're putting into your body and so that's that's one way of supporting harvestable um otherwise you can find me on uh, my Instagram's at Rosenbluth. We have an Instagram at Harvestable. Uh, my email's Travis at Harvestable.com. And then you can support the Nerdy Bunch by going to the Nerdy Bunch on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, I'm pretty sure. I've got a new website. Um, and uh, yeah, like, subscribe. And I'm going to be putting out a, a couple um, blog posts on Harvestable soon talking about just my ideas as a chef and kind of getting that conversation going because I think a lot of people want to engage into food but you know don't really know what to talk about besides they want it to be good so I'll try to break down some more keen issues and and we can start the conversation 
Perfect. Well, thank you, Travis, so much for coming on to the Evernorth Podcast. Ah, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, share it with friends and family, and you can find us at ever underscore north on Instagram and Twitter and evernorthco on Facebook.